just knowing that you will not get drunk from a glass or two of beer or wine is not enough to justify drinking it. The truth of the fact that kissing or holding hands is not the same as premarital sex does not mean it's okay to kiss. The reality that being entertained by watching sin does not mean that you are practicing that sin of murder or whatever it may be does not answer the question of whether it's right or wrong to watch that movie. There's more to it. It's not just knowledge. Join us now for Grace to the Bay as we glorify the Lord Jesus Christ through sound expository teaching by our teacher, Dr. Roger Chen. Grace to the Bay is the radio outreach of Grace Church of the Bay Area located in San Mateo. If you are blessed by Dr. Chen's message and are looking for a church home, you're invited to come worship with them. Now, here is Dr. Chen. This morning we begin a multi-part series entitled Limiting Liberty. This morning we look at the foundational comparison. Now what is Christian liberty? Let's start there. It's the idea that Christians are free to practice any activity that is not forbidden in Scripture. These are areas that we often refer to as gray areas. Gray areas because we know that right or wrong is clear in the Bible as black is to white. But the gray areas that fall within the bounds of Christian liberty are plentiful. They are not those that are condemned or forbidden in Scripture, and they are not necessarily things that are praised in Scripture. Here are some common examples of gray areas in our day and age. Drinking alcohol, smoking tobacco, holding hands or kissing before marriage, watching certain TV shows and movies, how you spend your money. These are all gray areas. Bible may give us instruction in terms of our hard attitudes, but in terms of the actual action or practice, it is not clear. So to address these types of issues, Paul begins by teaching on knowledge. And this is the foundation of the problem of abusing Christian liberty or viewing Christian liberty gray areas incorrectly, and that is knowledge, what you know. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, and we'll see this teaching on knowledge. Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. And in these three verses, I want to give you four foundational aspects of knowledge to help us understand Christian liberty. It is the foundation. That's why he starts there. So four foundational aspects of knowledge to understand Christian liberty. And because Paul starts there, because God starts there, we understand that to understand Christian liberty, we must begin here. Without a proper understanding of our knowledge, how to view our knowledge, how to use our knowledge, then we will not fully understand Christian liberty. We will give in to license and sin on the one hand or legalism on the other. So let's begin with the first foundational aspect of knowledge, the availability of knowledge. It is available to everyone, specifically to all Christians. Look at the first sentence in verse 1. Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. In other words, we all know the reality of idols. Now though there are many great areas, areas of Christian liberty, Paul addresses one that the Corinthians themselves had written to him about. They had asked him about this. 
Though strange to most of us, it was a very real concern for the Corinthians, that of idols and eating meat sacrificed to idols. But in that particular situation, it provides us a helpful basis to our understanding of Christian liberty, of all Christian liberty, regardless of what the issue is. So the issue to eating meat that has been sacrificed to idols has been asked of Paul And he now answers it. But let me explain what this issue is, why it's such a big deal. Now, you know in that time and place, religion was much more prominent than it is for us today in America. This was the heyday of the Roman and Greek polytheistic religions that are a significant part of ancient world history, a significant part of our studies here in America. What is for us a lot of stories was for the Corinthians a reality of existence. Even unbelievers, even as you were an unbeliever when you learned these things perhaps in high school, you didn't believe them. You didn't start worshiping Zeus. You didn't start believing finding a boyfriend or girlfriend had to do with sacrificing to Venus or Aphrodite. They were stories. They were part of world history. And we are going back to a time in where it wasn't history. It was the present. And so what is just stories for us was a real challenge for the Corinthian Christians back then. Not just being enmeshed in these religions, but seeing it all around them. There were temples and idols all over the place. In fact, this would have been a place where even as Christians, perhaps with our solid understanding today, we would want to visit to see the beautiful architecture and structures, though understanding they were dedicated to false gods. These religions were so integral to the culture that it affected not only the social life, but also the very economy of the day. I mean, I think about in Ephesus, right? We read about this in Acts. Remember, there was a riot that broke out because they were bothered that Paul was preaching and so many people were converting to Christianity. But remember, this was a riot that was not started by Jesus-hating Jews, but by the craftsmen who were making a living by making idols and statues. Their business, their livelihood was so affected or potentially affected by the number of people turning to Christ and no longer buying these statues and these different idols, it was bad for business. And so the power of the gospel aside, this shows how significant idol worship was back then, even so much that the rise of the church affected the idol manufacturing industry, and the entire economy back then. Also, in Acts chapter 17, we read of what is known as the best presentation of the gospel outside of the words of Jesus Christ Himself in all of Scripture, the Sermon on Mars Hill or the Areopagus. Why was this? You remember that Paul had basically fled. He was waiting for his companions to join him. In Acts 17, it was a time to rest. It was not part of his planned itinerary, if you will. But we are told that he looked around, and it wasn't that he was looking for them or he happened to be at a particular temple. He was just there, and the whole city was so filled with idols and temples that we are told that Paul was, quote, provoked within him. He could not stay quiet. There was just too much. And so as you could imagine, perhaps you have even uh, partaken of this before you came to Christ. Idol worship was not just very prevalent, but is very involved 
we kind of laugh it off. We read these stories and we don't realize how involved it was. It was very involved because, of course, as you know, false gods are based on the real God. False religions are based on the real religion. And so the intricacies of the Old Testament sacrifices would have been copied and emulated by these false religions as well. And so part of this worship was the offering of sacrifices. And we get closer to the issue at hand. The worshiper would bring an animal to the temple. The animal would be killed. And again, copying God's real law, the animal had to be without blemish. For most of these false religions, however, rather than looking at the animal, they would also cut it open and look at the entrails. And the entrails had to be perfect. And if it was suitable for that god or goddess, certain parts of the animal would be burned on an altar outside of that temple. That would be that God's, that idol's portion. And that part of the uh, animal that was dedicated to that God or goddess was left on a special table outside for them to enjoy or consume. Wouldn't it always be meat? There would be produce as well. You have perhaps seen this in Buddhist temples where they will leave oranges and different things and it would just sit there in front of the statue. That would be the same idea. You don't touch that. That's for the God, the deity. Another part of the animal would have been given to the worshipers to eat in a celebration in honor of that deity. This was often a huge deal. Banquet would be held within the temple or whatever area that they were celebrating. Even people who were not worshiping that particular god or goddess would be invited. This would be something where you would invite VIPs, important people and family members to have a a big celebration, a big banquet to enjoy this animal that you have sacrificed Now, these animals were big, and so even though there was a portion for the god, there was a portion that was eaten, there would still be a lot left. And they were not going to let that go to waste, and so anything left over was sent to the butcher so that he could uh, sell it at the marketplace. Now, this meat was very, very desirable. Just as if you have ever lived or visited some place in where Islam is popular, as I once did, there are places that sell meat specifically that is suitable for people who are practicing Muslims. You have the same thing for Jews, kosher things today. You know that is higher quality. And so this was really desirable because physically it had to be high quality to be meat sacrificed at the temple. It was blemish-free, suitable for the offering. But also this meat was spiritually clean, at least in their eyes. Because the ceremonial sacrificing at that temple of the false god or goddess involved removing the demons from the animal. Obviously, we know this didn't really happen. But they did this thing where the followers of that religion believed that the demons were gone. And so you could buy this meat and eat it knowing that it was good quality meat physically, but also demon-free. And as silly as that sounds to us, you can understand how someone enslaved to such a pagan religion would be either terrified or relieved regarding the condition of their food. So how does this relate to the church at Corinth? As we've seen throughout our study, Paul is addressing various questions that the Corinthians had asked them in a separate letter that we don't have. This is one of them. And we know that phrase that he begins verse 1, chapter 8 with, now concerning or now about in the NIV, is an indication that not only is he changing topics, but he is now addressing something that they had asked about in their correspondence. And the issue is whether or not Christians are allowed to eat this type of food sacrificed to idols. Now, 
rather than just giving them a yes or no, right or wrong answer, he systematically lays out the proper thinking in this matter. And that is so important uh, for all of us. Whenever we encourage someone, as the men are going through a book on uh, basically layperson's counseling, it's important not just to tell people, do this, don't do that, but to help them with their thinking, as we have modeled here by God, very God, through the Apostle Paul. Now keep in mind, this is very helpful in addressing gray areas. It's helpful in addressing areas that are black and white because obviously we want people not just to do something or not do something. We want their heart and their understanding to be correct, but especially in gray areas so we can think through it properly so that in our minds, in our consciences, the gray becomes white or black. Now keep in mind he is talking to believers, Christians, And so the issue of eating meat is very different than if you were talking to someone who actually was invited to a banquet as a pagan guest. These are Christians. So these are not people who are concerned with the practices of pagan worship. They are not worshiping false idols. Some of them, if not many of them, however, did. They were saved out of these religions. And so there is very clear, there are very clear experiences, memories. Now as believers, there's probably a lot of guilt because of things they did in the past. And this isn't even an issue where it's easy to be removed from that. For example, if there's a certain crew of of kids you used to do drugs with and now you can distance yourself from them, you cannot even go to that part of the town or you can even move to another state and never see them again. This is different because even in walking to church, they would see these idols and temples and these memories would flood them. That's important to understand as to why this is an issue. As believers, they now know That idol worship is detestable to the real God. They know that idols are not real. They understand that idolatry opposes God and is, in fact, as Paul will say in chapter 10, demonic. What's more, idol worship, especially in Corinth, as we saw in the last chapter, was directly connected to sexual immorality because of the temple prostitutes. But... Knowing that all of that is fake, not real, doesn't exist, doesn't mean it doesn't still cause them to stumble because of their past experiences. In the same way, you have may have been sober since the day you were saved 30 years ago, but you still have problems when you turn on the TV and it's a biopic about a famous drug dealer or it's a show about the misuse of drugs, that still bothers you. Or even reading the news and hearing about heroin overdoses, that still bothers you. When I first uh, visited Albania in college uh, in the mid-early 90s, they have these coffee bars. They're everywhere. Every other shop, storefront, was a coffee shop. And they would blast music out of their shops. It was everywhere. so loud. And what they particularly liked at that time was 80s music. And I remember uh, on, I believe, the second team I was part of was a lady who was a good 10 years older than me, very mature, very solid Christian. And yet she had a problem every day because in the 80s, 
She was involved in such a sinful lifestyle, doing sinful things as an unbeliever while listening to that music, that music being pumped into her ears 24-7 brought up these floods of memories. And yet, this was a very mature Christian. You understand what I'm saying here. You have those same experiences. And so, this is why Paul starts with this knowledge. And he's saying you have to not just understand that idolatry is not real, but you have to take into account other things. And so Paul begins by saying we know that we all have knowledge. The phrase we all have knowledge is in quotes in the ESV as it is believed that this is a phrase that was used by the Corinthians, perhaps even a common saying among them. Now, what is this knowledge that we all have? Again, I mentioned it earlier but it is the truth about idols. He's saying, look, now that we're believers, we all know that idols aren't real. We all know that everyone's wasting their money, sacrificing and leaving a portion of the meat and their fruits and vegetables on that table because the thing that they think is going to eat it or enjoy that does not exist. He is not lesser than God. He does not exist. We know that there were never any demons in the meat or that there is anything spiritually different from temple meat than just normal meat that hasn't gone through this process of being sacrificed and dedicated at a pagan temple. And there is no Christian that thinks otherwise. We all understand this. But again, Paul's point is that's not enough to solve the issue of whether or not you should eat this meat. In other words... Knowing that pagan gods are real is not enough, or not real is not enough. It's not enough to solve the issue of Christian liberty. The facts of what is true or not are not enough. Knowing that pagan gods are not real is not enough to justify the practice of any gray areas. There's more to consider. In other words, once again, whether eating such meat is right or wrong is not solely determined by what you know. So just knowing that the God is not real does not mean it's okay to eat the meat. Just knowing that you will not get drunk from a glass or two of beer or wine is not enough to justify drinking it. The truth of the fact that kissing or holding hands is not the same as premarital sex does not mean it's okay to kiss. The reality that being entertained by watching sin does not mean that you are practicing that sin of murder or whatever it may be does not answer the question of whether it's right or wrong to watch that movie. There's more to it. It's not just knowledge. You can't just look at the Bible and says, can't have premarital sex, that's all it says, and so we can do anything else. That's not enough. There's more. What's the more? That leads us to our second foundational aspect of knowledge, and that is the antithesis of knowledge. The antithesis of knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. The end of verse 1. Wait, 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 wait. So what... Does knowledge and love have to do with whether I can eat that meat or not? To kiss or not? Drink or not? What does love have to do with this? Everything. Everything. Remember, we're laying a foundation here. And like the foundation of an award-winning architectural building, 
the foundation, which is just usually rebar and concrete, looks nothing like the structure. It will hold up to the degree that it almost seems irrelevant, but we all know how important it is. No matter how beautiful, how many awards that building has won, you will not step foot in there if you know it has no foundation. So, why is knowledge, knowing facts, even theological facts, even Scripture, not enough? Because knowledge, Paul says, makes arrogant, literally puffed up with hot air like a, like a balloon. In other words, knowing these things is not enough because if you just stop at knowledge and do not add love, it just makes you proud for knowing. In other words, there's no consideration of others, including God, if you just stop at knowledge. And we know people like this who just give us the facts to justify anything they want to do. But on the other hand, the antithesis, Paul adds that love edifies or builds up. Not you, but others. Knowledge does something negative to you. It just puffs you up. Love edifies others. And we know that Christianity is all about others. And this is because love takes into account the facts, the knowledge, yes, but goes beyond them to consider what may be going on in another person's life. It's not that we disregard or twist the truth to accommodate others, but we must couple our knowledge with true biblical love. If we don't, then we will arrogantly disregard others' feelings, edification, and situations, including their past experiences. We see this in the Corinthians, then we see this in the church now. People who are confronted for something they said that was discouraging or hurtful, well, what I said was true, and I didn't mean to hurt you, so my conscience is clear, so it's okay. It doesn't matter that your wife spent three days crying because I hurt her. And yet the irony is that those who stop at knowledge are somehow quick to pass judgment on others based on their assumptions without knowing the facts. And that goes back to the reality because knowledge makes arrogant. I think this is worse today because of our sense of self-entitlement. But the Christian life, friends, is not a criminal investigation or a legal contract where we just want the legal facts. We want love. We must love. See, love is empty of pride. Love considers others as more important than yourselves, Philippians 2. Love seeks to help. Love seeks to strengthen. Love seeks to encourage. Love seeks to protect others, not just protect your own reputation if that means crushing them or tearing them down. Protects others. You know, somehow in our clinging to sound doctrine in a world where even evangelicals are dismissing God's truth, we have somehow started to equate doctrine, theology, greater knowledge of the Scriptures with maturity. And yet over and over again, God tells us that it's not knowledge, but love that shows a growing and healthy relationship with Him. We must have knowledge. We must know the truth of the Scriptures. That's how we practice love, based on that truth. But if we don't put that knowledge into practice with biblical, self-sacrificing love, then we are just feeding our egos and become not a help to others, but a danger. I did not say we become not a help to others, but a non-help. You become a danger. You hurt people. Knowledge alone makes us steamroll over others' convictions or impose our own. Can I be frank with you as your pastor? I find this especially true in churches like ours. Half of our members left churches because they were or were becoming liberal or seeker-sensitive, so they came to us. And I praise God for that. 
And the result is that we cling to the truth. We hold fast to knowledge. But the temptation is then to take that knowledge and abuse God's Word by judging our former churches or beating the other member, the former members and pastors over the head with it. You should do this. You're doing this wrong in an unloving way. And perhaps in a twisted form of taking this to the next level, we start idolizing the man whose books and sermons taught us the truth. MacArthur, Sprawl, Washer, Lawson, whomever. We must be careful. Speak the truth. Be passionate for God's glory. Hate heresy. But when you address people, do it in love. Don't throw bombs over the walls of the church. And may I give a warning to those of you who got excited by what I just said, especially when I mentioned those names, because you like, like to criticize these men simply because you're annoyed by those who appreciate them. You too, my friend, misunderstand the roles of knowledge and love. There must be a balance between both. Love without truth is subjective and unbiblical. Truth without love is disobedience and has nothing to do with God. You can say his name, you can quote his word. But without love, as we'll see in 1 Corinthians 13, it is absolutely worthless. And what's more, Paul gives us descriptions in that chapter that is actually quite annoying. This has been Grace to the Bay with Dr. Roger Chen. For the next part in this series, join us next week at this same time. Grace to the Bay is the radio ministry of Grace Church of the Bay Area, practicing and proclaiming the purity of biblical truth. You are invited to join them for worship services in San Mateo, Sundays at 11 a.m. Visit gracebayarea.org for service times, directions, live streamed services, listen to archived sermons, or to make a tax-deductible donation to help keep Grace to the Bay on the air so that we can continue to share Pastor Roger's teaching with you each week. Again, that's gracebayarea.org.